So Philippians chapter 3, reading from verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like in him in his death, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. It's God's word. Let's take a seat. And good morning. Let me um, thank you to Russell for leading us so far through the service, and let me add my welcome to Russell's. Um, if we haven't met before, I think there are a, a few folks uh, visiting, maybe here visiting family or um, maybe in, in the city for, for holiday. You're very, very welcome. Uh, my name's Johnny. I'm um, part of the leadership team here at Hebron, and it is really, really great to see you. Um, we're going to spend, as Russell's mentioned, a few minutes continuing our series in the letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Um, and I say this every Sunday. I'm conscious it'll be irksome to some, um, but if you do have a Bible, please do have it open in front of you as we make our way through that passage over the next few minutes together. Before we think about it, though, I'm going to pray and to ask for God's help. So let me, let me pray for us. The psalmist writes, Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Our God and Father, we praise you that your word is good and it is right. And we ask that over the coming few minutes, you would please help us to understand. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's um, been a a real privilege of of mine, a pleasure of mine, over the last few weeks to visit the two university Christian unions in the city, at uh, Aberdeen University and uh, RGU, apart from uh, making me feel roughly one million years old. Uh, but it's been really encouraging to, to see how enthusiastic and clear the CUs both are. Clear in their love for Jesus uh, and clear in a desire to tell other people about him, folks on campuses in the city. Yeah, but it has also made me a, a little bit reflective because all of 10 to 15 plus years ago, uh, I was sitting in one of their seats 
and quite literally sitting in, in one of their seats as a member of one of the CUs in Aberdeen. And that was a very, very happy time for me, and it's a very happy memory in some ways. But reflecting on it has, has also been a slightly sad thing in another way. Because there are lots of folks who were part of the Christian Union when I was there, with whom I'd still be in touch, and who are still pressing on as clear Christians, serving in local churches and looking to tell people about the Lord Jesus. But there are quite a lot who aren't. Friends of mine who, who were crystal clear about the Christian faith, and whom I would have considered to be partners in the gospel as we stood together side by side telling people about Jesus on campus. But quite a few of those folks are very uninterested in Christian things at all now, never mind telling other people about Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you might have experienced something similar yourself. You might be able to remember folks who at one time were maybe just as committed as you were to telling other people about Jesus, but who aren't at all now. In fact, you might even see some of that in yourself. And that experience isn't all that unusual, nor is it anything new. And we know that it isn't new because of Philippians chapter 3. You see, that is, is one of Paul's main prompts for writing verses 1 to 11 of Philippians 3, in fact. Just read again, if you have your Bible open in front of you, verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, writes Paul, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's main objective in, in these few verses is the Philippians' safety. Not their, their physical health and safety, you understand, in the context of the letter as a whole. And as we'll see over the next few minutes, the content of chapter 3 itself, in fact, Paul's talking about the safety of their partnership in the gospel. If this is your first Sunday with us this morning or you are just visiting, gospel partnership has been a key theme in this letter as a whole. Paul's writing to, to encourage a church, a, a partnership, if you like, of gospel workers who are standing together telling other people about Jesus. And in Philippians 3, he's trying to safeguard that partnership for the long haul. Now, just how does he think they might do that? How can they ensure that they'll stay the course as a gospel team? Well, we've already seen how this morning. But it's just such a surprise, you might not even have spotted it. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Stay safe, says Paul, from the challenges you might face as a church family, as a gospel team, as members of a gospel partnership, by rejoicing in the Lord. Now that might raise as many questions as it answers, because... Well, that isn't really how rejoicing works, is it? You can't command someone to rejoice. I could have a, a jolly good go, but I suspect I wouldn't be that successful this morning. I could tell you to, to, to put a smile on your face. But you can't really tell people to, to rejoice, can you? Well, Paul thinks that he can. And the reason he thinks that he can is that rejoicing in the Lord isn't like putting a smile on your face. In fact, it isn't a purely emotional thing at all. 
it comes from remembering, from, from, from consciously considering, to use Paul's word, from counting what is yours as one of God's people. Now, Paul outlines two grounds for that kind of rejoicing in verses 1 to 11. We're going to, to come to those in a moment or two. But before he gives the positive, he highlights one negative. One thing we might look to for joy, but really shouldn't. And so we're going to think about that together now. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul, by counting everything else as loss. Verses 2 to 8. Now, I, I surely can't be the only one who feels a little bit overwhelmed by the sheer volume of warnings we're now given about the risk of fraud Banks are, are fairly persistent with it. They, before they let you transfer cash to anyone online, you have to make your way through a, a bit of a, a fraud warning gauntlet, don't you? So you enter your password and then your safe word and then your backup safe word and the reason you're making the transfer and the real reason you're making the transfer. Then you tell them whether you've been compelled to make the transfer. Then you have to answer again if that really is your name. And after all those questions, you can start to wonder whether you might actually be a fraudster. After all, it puts you on high alert, doesn't it? And Paul wants to do something similar in Philippians chapter 3. Part of of safeguarding the Philippians is alerting them to the danger of fraud. Of people selling them a defective version of the Christian faith. And he does that three times over, in fact. Just notice with me, verse 2. Look out for the dogs... Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out, look out, look out. See, it seems for the Philippians, there were people out there who were looking to cause them harm. Paul thinks they're bad news indeed. And he uses very strong language to describe them. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. Paul thinks they're absolutely toxic. And the reason they were so dangerous, it seems, is that they hoped to persuade the Philippians to, in in Paul's words, to put their confidence in the flesh. Again, just notice he repeats that phrase three times in verses three and four. Just read verses three and four with me again. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. There are people, it seems, who are trying to convince the Philippians to put their confidence in the flesh. And uh, we get a sense of what that might have looked like from what Paul tells us next. Because he sketches out a CV for us. I wonder if he spotted that from verses 5 to 7. And it is a standout CV. Standout particularly when it comes to Paul's religious pedigree and to his religious performance. Notice firstly what he says about his pedigree. Verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day, he says. That's the day by the Old Testament scriptures on which he was meant to be circumcised as a faithful Jew. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And again, that's that's another good thing. Benjamin was one of the tribes who remained loyal to God, even when other tribes didn't. I am, he summarizes, a Hebrew of Hebrews. His religious pedigree is as good as it gets. 
And so too his religious performance. Verse 6, as to the law, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a group of Jews who were meticulous about following the Jewish scriptures. He continues, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So he was so zealous about being an upstanding Jew that he tried to stomp out all those pesky Christians who threatened or undermined the Jewish faith. He concludes verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, as far as his religious qualifications, both religious pedigree and religious performance, Paul's top of the class. If anyone has the right to, to, to be confident in themselves, confident at having met God's perfect standard, well, it's Paul. But Paul thinks that that kind of confidence is dangerous. Remember, he's warning the Philippians against it. Look out, look out, look out. And he actually takes things a step further than that. It isn't just religious performance or religious pedigree that you can look to for confidence. It's absolutely anything. He says, verse 8, I count everything as loss. I could have had confidence in the flesh because, frankly, my flesh was quite impressive, says Paul. I could have put my confidence in, in, in trust in lots of other things, in fact. But that kind of confidence, well, well, it's worthless. It's dangerous, even. Now, um, Paul's experience is, is a unique one in terms of his religious credentials. I'm guessing most of us don't have anything like the same sort of spiritual CV that Paul does. But that doesn't mean that we can't sometimes be tempted to believe the lie. The lie that our religious track record is something for us to be confident in. In fact, perhaps you're here this morning and you can see a lot of what Paul's describing in yourself. In how you think of your spiritual pedigree, for example. Before moving to Aberdeen, Fiona and I used to serve at a church in Edinburgh. And there were quite a few students there. I can remember the start of a new university term a few years ago. And I was chatting to one of the students who I hadn't met before. That was his first time visiting our church. And I was trying to get a sense as to where he was coming from, whether church was new for him, whether he might be a Christian who was looking for somewhere to settle. And after a bit of discussion, I ended up saying to him really quite clumsily on reflection, would you say that you're a Christian? And quick as a flash, he replied... My dad's a church minister. And that was it. Just stopped talking. As if that answered the question. As if his dad being a minister meant that, of course, I should presume he's a Christian. Can you see that that, that, that sort of pedigree can be where we look to for confidence? Now, perhaps for you, the equivalent isn't a parent in full-time vocational church service. But if someone like me were to ham-fistedly ask you after a service like this morning's service, would you say that you're a Christian? I wonder if some of us might reply instead, I grew up in a Christian home. Or I grew up in such and such evangelical church. Or my family are really involved, and, and actually they're quite well known around the churches in my local area. You might have heard of us actually. We're the Bloggs family. Have you heard of us? No? See, pedigree can count for for quite a lot to some of us, can't it? Or perhaps that that isn't at all where you put confidence. But perhaps instead, your confidence is entrusted into your religious performance. How actively you're involved in serving. 
how well your morning quiet times are going. How sacrificial you are in your financial giving. Your activities are the sort of litmus test for how well you're doing with God. And it is just worth saying that that each of those are, are good activities. But if any of them are your grounds for spiritual security, if that's where you look to for assurance that you and God are on speaking terms, well, you're on a very shaky peg. And I wonder if you can see why it's such a shaky peg. It's unsafe to you as an individual Christian. And and we know that from our own experience because, well, no matter how hard I try, my performance is always up and down. I've got good days and I've got bad days. And if, if the standard is perfection, then even my good days don't meet that standard. And I wonder if you can see, too, how it's unsafe for gospel partnership. Because it takes the gospel, it takes the good news out of a gospel partnership. Believing that I can do enough to save myself, well, that just isn't good news. And Jesus came to bring abundant, eternal life, not, not the crippling uncertainty that comes from placing your confidence in, in what you do for God or in what your family has done for God. All of which is why Paul frames this as a warning. Look out, look out, look out. To stay safe as a Christian, safeguarded against being enticed out of a gospel partnership. Learn to rejoice in the Lord. How do you do that? Well, you do it by counting everything you're tempted to put your trust in as loss. That's our first point this morning. But it does leave us with a a bit of a gaping hole, doesn't it? If you aren't trusting in performance or in pedigree... Well, what are you meant to trust instead? That's our second point this morning. Learn to rejoice in the Lord by treasuring Jesus and the righteousness that he gives. Now, if if you've been here recently, you might have picked up from the notices on on previous Sundays that we've had, uh, we had a young adults gathering uh, last night, which was fun. Uh, It was was fun for me anyway, whether it was fun for anyone else who was there, I'm not quite sure. We had a good time though. Uh, And we're thinking about John's gospel this term. And one of our big objectives is, is to help each other think about how the good news of Jesus lands in actual conversations. Not in the sort of fake, uh, imagined conversations that preachers often come up with, but, but what it would actually look like in your office or in your, your lecture theatre or seminar or, or in your friendship group to speak about Jesus. So, for example, when someone in our office asks what we think about the latest celebrity scandal in the press... How do we respond to that and show the difference that Jesus makes? And that kind of process, thinking about real-life conversations that we actually have with people, well, got me to thinking on how Paul's pals might have thought of what he said so far in Philippians chapter 3, particularly his Jewish pals. Hang on a minute, Paul. Are you trying to say that God doesn't care about how I behave now. I mean, just remember that, that that religious performance, those laws that you were trying to be, most of them were laws given to us by God himself. So are you trying to tell me that, 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 that God has sort of moved the goalposts now, that he isn't really that fussed with how we behave and we should just kind of back off a little bit? 
And it's possible you're thinking the same thing yourself this morning, actually. Is, is Paul trying to say that the answer to this problem, to these dogs, these evildoers, is just to be less uptight? Not to worry so much about obeying God. That it, it doesn't really mind how we behave now. To which Paul would answer, no, that isn't what I'm saying at all. It's quite the opposite, in fact. See, God cares far more about obedience and about purity than you're giving him credit for. That's precisely why you can't look to your flesh, to your own performance and pedigree and take any confidence in it at all. God is perfect. And in in order to, to relate to him rightly, we need to be perfect too. That's why you, you, you can't look to your pedigree or performance for confidence because we can't make that great. And yet wonderfully says Paul, God met the grade for us. Read with me again from verse 8. The end of verse 8. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now that word righteousness is a way of, of talking about being right in God's sight, being, being morally and spiritually and ethically pure enough to relate to a perfectly pure God. And Paul's saying that he can't rely on his efforts to get that purity, that right standing himself, because even his very best efforts to make the grade fell short. And yet wonderfully, Jesus met the grade for him. Do you see that? He says, Paul's righteousness is right standing before God. It isn't his own. Verse 9, it's righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. By trusting in Jesus, God gave Paul a new track record. A perfect track record. And that's what happened at the cross. It was a righteousness swap, if you like. Where Jesus took your completely inadequate efforts to make the grade. And all of the consequences you and I should face for those failures. He took them. And in their place, he gave you his perfect, spotless record. Such that when God, the Father, looks at someone who is trusting in Jesus. Well, he doesn't see our sin and our failure and our flimsy efforts to please him. But Jesus' perfect obedience. I wonder if you can see why Paul thinks that's reason for rejoicing. Why we ought to think that's reason for rejoicing. If you're a Christian this morning, it gives you rock-solid assurance of your standing before God. That all of your flimsy efforts to make the grade, they're worthless compared to that. Because Jesus and all he has done... It's of surpassing worth and value. It's the most precious thing Paul has. And if you're a Christian, the most precious thing that you have. And we do sometimes need to be reminded of that, don't we? Need to remind ourselves of that, in fact. I think I've mentioned before that we each have more conversations inside the the four walls of our own minds than we have with anyone else. You ever thought about that before, that, that... We all talk to ourselves. It's just that some of us do it out loud and get funny looks when we do it. But we all talk to ourselves. 
Paul would have us take those internal monologues by the scruff of the neck. Would have you count your religious pedigree and performance as nothing compared to Jesus. That's the language he uses, isn't it? Count it as lost. That's a conscious, considered decision. It's an effort, a willed thing. So don't listen to that voice that says you're safe with God because your family are all Christians. Or the voice that tells you your relationship with God hangs in the balance each time you decide whether you you should make that charitable donation or whether you should sign up for another rota. Because that isn't what defines you. That cannot be what defines you as a Christian. You have been united to Jesus, says Paul. Your standing before God is secure in him. And so when you're tempted to doubt it, tempted to put your trust in something else, well, preach to yourself. Talk to yourself and talk yourself out of that kind of thinking. That's how to rejoice in the Lord. That's how to safeguard things as a Christian, how to safeguard a gospel partnership for the long haul by counting what you have in Jesus, what he's done for you, what he's given you. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian at all. And um, maybe you've never really understood Jesus' death in that way before either. And if that's the case, I'm aware that that all of that might make you want to do anything but rejoice. Uh, Because we don't like to think that we, 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 we can't make the grade, spiritually speaking, do we? We can, we can try and make the grade in a religious way, like Paul did, but we can do it in a very secular, socially acceptable looking way. By trying to be nice. Or a kind enough person. Such that if there is a God out there, if there is some kind of higher power, then, well then he's bound to let me in. But you see, the consistent message through the whole Bible is that none of us are good enough. That we're in far deeper trouble than that. And that nothing we can do can make up for it, no matter how religious or moral we might think we are. And yet the good news of Jesus is that he made a way that we could know him and be with him for all eternity through a righteousness swap. My flimsy efforts to be good for Jesus' perfect ones. And we take hold of that swap, says Paul, through faith. It's a righteousness, says Paul, that depends, verse 9, on faith. If you've never done that before, never trusted in him for yourself, that's something you can do today. And I would love it if you did. can believe that he died for your sake. And, and, And Paul's righteousness swap story can be your story too. Rejoice in the Lord, says Paul. How? Well, by treasuring Jesus and the righteousness that he gives. Now, there is one final reason for rejoicing in Jesus. And we're going to unpack this more fully next week, but I'll introduce it now. It comes in verses 10 and 11, where Paul tells us to rejoice in God by knowing the power and promise of resurrection. Verses 10 to 11. There are um, a couple of mentions of the resurrection in verses 10 and 11. And at the second of those might not come as a surprise at all. The logic might be almost what we'd expect. Verse 11, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's talking about a promised future day when Jesus will return. 
And he'll bring about a physical resurrection of everyone who's trusted in Jesus. Uh, And he would have us rejoice by looking forwards to that promise being fulfilled. Again, that might not come as a surprise. And we're going to unpack that more fully next Sunday morning. But although that logic might not come as a surprise, what might come as a surprise is that he also highlights a present tense aspect to the resurrection. Did you see that? Verse 10 that I may know him, present tense, and the power of his resurrection. Paul's talking about experiencing resurrection power, the power of God as he raised Jesus to life, not just on that future day, but in this life now. And I'm aware that even as I use that phrase, the power of his resurrection or resurrection power, that all sorts of different ideas might pop into your head. It's a phrase that um, TV evangelists love to make hay out of, for example. They'll often speak in terms of tapping into God's resurrection power as as though it's some sort of force field somewhere or or a code that you need to crack. And once you do, goes the logic by, by following the three steps they give you to follow, which often include, incidentally, giving them money, then God will turn things around for you. That's what a resurrection is, isn't it? It's a radical turnaround. So if you follow those three steps, you'll have resurrection power, and you'll turn your meager savings into gigantic ones. He'll take your your, your broken relationships, and he'll make them whole again. He'll take the difficulties you face now, and he'll turn them around. But that isn't what Paul's talking about at all. Because to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, just read what he says. Knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection involves sharing in suffering. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, present tense, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, there are the inferences that resurrection power is at work, not in a radical reversal necessarily of my circumstances here and now, But it's our work, even in suffering. Even through suffering as we tell people about him. Now I'm aware that that does sound surprising, might even sound quite confusing to some of us. But again, it shouldn't be all that new to us as a church family. It might feel like it's a long, long time ago now. We we spent the best part of six months at the end of last year, and the beginning of this year, studying Mark's account of Jesus' life on Sunday mornings. And in those studies, we were repeatedly called pretty much every week to take up a cross to follow this Jesus. And Paul's saying, I think, that even in that process, in the taking up a cross to follow Jesus, with all the difficulties it may well entail, well, the resurrection power of God is at work in us and through us. And that makes sense in Paul's situation as he writes this letter. Remember, he's in in a Roman prison cell. When he's writing, he's chained for telling people about Jesus. And yet, even in those chains, he's still able, repeatedly through this letter, to rejoice. Not because he's a masochist. Not because he thinks he's paying some kind of penance through the suffering he's going through. But because even in that suffering, God is at work in him and is at work through him. That even in chains, Paul was experiencing God's resurrection power at work in his life, changing him and growing him to look more and more like Jesus, using him to bring other people to experience the same hope that he had. Now, again, we'll think more on this next week. 
But can you see how all of that might well be grounds for rejoicing in the Lord? Particularly if you're going to go the long haul as a partner in the gospel. Because it is worth being honest because Paul is and Jesus is in fact. Gospel partnership is a costly thing. Telling people about Jesus as an individual and doing it alongside one another as Christians. Well it provokes negative reactions. If you've never experienced it before then I suspect you will do in the days to come. And and when you're made to look like an idiot for telling your flatmates about Jesus... When you're made to feel like the odd one out for sticking with him when others are walking away. Knowing that even in that moment, his power is at work in me. Shaping me to be more like Jesus. That his power is at work through me as the good news of Jesus goes out. Even if folks who hear it don't accept it. Well that changes things, doesn't it? It might not feel like a great victory might not look like a moment of great power. But neither did the cross. And yet in that, and through that, God's power was at work. And so if you are a Christian, how do you keep safe? How do you make sure you keep pressing on as a partner in the gospel so that in 10 or 15 or 25 years time, people aren't looking at empty seats where you once sat as a partner in the gospel with them? Well, finally, my brother says, Paul, rejoice in the Lord. How? Well, firstly, by counting everything else as worthless. See it for what it is. And consciously remind yourself, count it as nothing. And you can do that. You really can do that. Because secondly, well, you have Jesus and his righteousness. So value him above anything else. And thirdly, you can rejoice in the Lord. Even as things get difficult when you stick with him. Because even in that difficulty... His power, that resurrection power, it is at work in you and through you. Let me ask now for his help to rejoice in him and that each of us would stay safe in him, even over this coming week. Let me pray as we close. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus We praise you for his suffering for our sakes. That he would bear our unrighteousness, our rebellion, our failure to make the grade. He would bear that on himself in his flesh. And that in his place, by trusting in him, he would give us his perfect, spotless track record. Father, we pray for anyone here who's hearing that news for the first time this morning that they would see it as the wonderful good news that it is and so come to treasure it, to treasure Jesus for themselves. And we ask that for those of us who have treasured Jesus, would you please help us to keep doing so? And that even when it's costly, that as partners in the gospel, you would please be at work in us and through us by that resurrection power of the Lord Jesus. We ask all of this in the name of that same resurrected Lord Jesus Christ.
and for his sake. Amen.